With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Studdard, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We support this goal by interviewing new and established writers and religious and spiritual leaders. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.theferritjournal.com where you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. We'd also like to let you know that our blog talk chat room is currently open and we are accepting callers. The number is 347 857 3009, and the number should also be visible on your computer screen at the Blog Talk website. Our interview tonight is with Edward Hirsch, poet, editor, professor, and Guggenheim Foundation president. Hirsch is the author of the best-selling book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, and his numerous awards include a National Book Critics Circle Award and a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. A tireless advocate for the importance of poetry, Hirsch has stated, I am convinced the kind of experience, the kind of knowledge one gets from poetry cannot be duplicated elsewhere. The spiritual life wants articulation. It wants embodiment and language. The physical life wants the spirit. I know this because I hear it in the words, because when I liberate the message in the bottle, a physical spiritual urgency pulses through the arranged text. It is as if the spirit grows in my hands or the words rise in the air. Roots and wings, the Spanish poet Juan Ramon Jimenez writes, but let the wings take root and the roots fly. Hi, Ed, are you there? Hi, Melissa, how are you? I'm doing terrific. I've been thinking all day I get to talk to Ed Hirsch about poetry for an hour. What could be better than that? It's a pleasure for me. Oh, terrific. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to jump in here with a huge question um, to start with. And um, based on the quote that I just read and on the statements that you make in Poet's Choice, that poetry is a human fundamental like music, um, can you talk about your views regarding the purpose of poetry for humanity and also the role of the poet in society, particularly in contemporary American society? Well, these are large questions. <laughs> I, I, I can't get to the bottom of all this in a few minutes, but <laughs> well, let me you know give it a look. <laughs> I'm afraid we'll run out of time, so I'm starting with the really big stuff. <laughs> let, me, let me give this a shot. Okay. The, Maybe we can break it down into two parts. First, the role of poetry or as a human fundamental, and then maybe the role of poetry in America is something else. Let me okay, start with terrific. that. Let me, first of all, the evidence. There's never been a culture without poetry. 
That's why I call it a human fundamental, that poetry exists everywhere there's language in every culture. So this makes me think that there is poetry and people write poetry and people read or listen to poetry, not just because there are some particularly aesthetic-minded or weird people who like it, like you and me, um, uh, if you see what I mean. People, there's, I mean, it's not just that there are some bohemians who like poetry, um, even though there are bohemians who like poetry, and it's not that there are just some bohemians in every culture who like poetry. That is, poetry has been instrumental to the making of culture all around the world. So, in every particular case. So this makes me think there must be something necessary in poetry. Now, I'm not saying it's the same thing is necessary in every culture or to every poet or that every person who goes to poetry seeks the same thing. But the fact that there is poetry and that it seems to be not accidental, that is, poetry must be carrying some kind of information, some kind of knowledge that we're not getting elsewhere. Because after all, poems are difficult. And so if it would be easy to get it somewhere else, we just would. We just turn on the TV or turn on the radio or um, put in our you know, put on our iPhone, whatever. Um, right. Wherever we are, we just go out and have other, other kinds of entertainment. But this kind of entertainment, this kind of fiction making, seems really crucial to human beings. And so the question is, what is that? And in different cultures, I think it means different things. Traditionally, the, in oral, on all oral cultures, um, there are epics. That is, narrative stories that tell the tale of the tribe. And this is absolutely fundamental to people's understanding of themselves in oral cultures. So poets are kind of the cultural historians and myth makers of a culture. They tell you the story of the culture, of what it means to be Yorba, or what it means to be Slovakian, or whatever. It, it, it tells you how, what it means to be part of a tribe, to be part of a culture. Okay. For those of us living in non-tribal cultures, poetry offers us, I think, a kind of, uh, I would say, unauthorized testimony. That is, it's very, it seems to me that the overlap with religion is very great. But the difference is that religion is authorized. It comes with the cultural power and spiritual authority of a group, of a church, whatever that church is. And people who join the church subscribe to, in certain ways to the doctrine of the church. In poetry, there's no church. But there is spiritual testimony. And the, the, so that's why I call it unauthorized testimony. It's necessary as a spiritual testament, but it comes you know, from a single person, from one. Without the authority of the group, it comes from the authority of the individual. That seems to me very American, very necessary for us because of our great tradition of individuality of the individual testament. Is this making sense wow. to you? Yes, it, it absolutely does. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I, I especially like the way you took it just 
historically, which is kind of what I wanted to see is how you would trace that. So thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about something also that's a little more esoteric in one of your books, um, and I hope you remember writing about it because you have so many books. I'm thinking, gosh, <laughs> this was a long time ago. But anyway, um, I have studied the creative process quite a bit, and um, when I was reading about your theories on lucid delirium, mm-hmm. um, I was especially interested in your analogy between artistic creation and shamanism. And I was wondering if you could explain the analogy for the listeners and maybe even share any other insights that you have about the creative process. The thing that you're, I mean, the thing you're talking about, I think, did you find this in my book on Duende? Yes. Did you find this on my book, The Demon of the Angel? Is that what you're, is that what you're talking about? Because that book tries to think about the subject of artistic inspiration. And what's Correct. involved in, in artistic inspiration. And poetry, as Freud saw, poetry is akin to daydreaming. It has relationships to dreams. It has relationships to daydreaming. But it's consciously made and unconsciously driven. So I'm trying to think. The reason I call it a lucid delirium um, is because it's not just delirious thinking. It's not just random irrationality, but it does tap some of the fevers and the powers of the irrational, of the unconscious. And it seems to me that creative inspiration itself, something that comes from deep inside of us, a well of creating something new, something that drives up from inside of us to put something new in the world, need some combination of conscious thought and unconscious power. And the unconscious power is the element of the irrational or the delirious. The the shamans of, say, Siberia or from other um, Eastern cults, uh, Alaskan shamans traditionally, but the, the shamanic power of primitive peoples, Um, The shaman is a kind of priest figure who becomes the stand-in for this kind of knowledge, who delivers this kind of information. There's a terrific book by Marceau Eliade on shamanism around the world. And you spell the last name? E-L-I-A-D-E. Oh, great. Thank you. Marceau Eliade. And he shows sort of the power of... of, um, shamanism in oral cultures everywhere in the world. And there's no doubt that the shaman is the kind of poet of many oral cultures. But the difference is that in these cultures, the poet is also a priest. Mm -hmm. And the shaman has certain ritual functions, ritual ritual things to do in, um, in sort of bringing forward the oral religion, and remembering the rights of a particular tribe. So our poets um, are not priests, but they have, cert- they have certain priestly functions, or they carry certain weight, certain kinds of information, certain kinds of knowledge that poets have always carried. And so that's why I compare them to, to shamans who know how to consciously put themselves into trances. 
Okay, great. I just thought that was so interesting because um, I've studied creativity quite a bit, and mm-hmm. I've never heard that analogy before. And it, to me, it's so poignant on um, you know what actually happens in the creative process, going and and bringing that back. And um, but this, actually, this is why it's oh, so, so dangerous and why it's so difficult. Because <laughs> you know you're deeping in, you're, you know you're 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 in dangerous territory here. You're going, you're yes. you're in deep waters. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking as you were talking about that that um, one of the things that I really love about your poetry, and I think a lot of other people do too, is that um, you've got such an amazing balance between the magic and the craft. And um, it sort of um, relates a little bit to what we're talking to, but I was wondering if there was anything in particular that you did in order to develop that way or if there's any advice that you can give to other writers or even other types of artists about how they can um, balance the craft and the inspiration like that. Well, this is, you know, this is complicated. And uh, if we knew how to bottle it, then we not only would be great teachers, but we'd have a lot more great artists. So it's very hard to to figure this out. But I think you're pointing to something that's important to me in terms of the practice of art, and that's that there is no authentic art, in my opinion, without this magical, irrational, unconscious element. There is something that is unpremeditated and something deeply spiritual, something that can't be contained in art. And we, when, we, when we read poems, when we write poems, when we look at paintings, when we listen to certain pieces of music, we feel this, this feeling being delivered to ourselves. At the same time, I don't believe that art is entirely unconscious and that this, I think this spirit has to somehow... You have to put yourself in the presence of it, but it also has to be delivered formally. And I think many poets let themselves down because, and let others down as well as a result because they just don't learn enough about their craft. Mm -hmm. And I think everything that should be learned, everything that can be learned about your craft should be learned about your craft. And I think there's a tremendous amount that you can teach yourself in the practicing of any craft, whether it's poetry or fiction or the making of music or the making of art of any sort. And so it is your job. It's part of your job description to learn about your art and to work at an apprenticeship to make yourself into the best artist that you can be. Now, that being said, I think it also is useful to know and to remember that conscious work itself, conscious labor, is not entirely sufficient. I mean, in his great defense of, of poetry, Shelley says, not even the greatest poet can say, I will write poetry. Because there's always something inexplicable, something outside the conscious control of the poet in the writing of authentic poetry. That's why poets are so superstitious, that's why poets call on to so many forces beyond themselves. So whenever you hear a poet going, an ancient poet going, help me, O heavenly muse. Right. What is he calling on? 
What is he calling for? And whatever you can call that, whether you want to call it the muse, or you want to call it creativity, or you want to call it, as Jung does, the collective unconscious, or you want to call it the unconscious, as Freud does, and the uncanny, whatever the name you give to it, whether you want to call it the white goddess, as Robert Graves does, whatever name you give to it, you are, all of them are doing the same thing. They are recognizing that there is a power, whether it's outside ourselves or inside ourselves, as I believe, um, that must be summoned or that you hope to summon in the creation of art. And that's the element of magic. So you try to put yourself in the way of that. Okay, great. And that actually made me think of something else that I really wanted to ask you, too. Um, You had said, and I can't remember where I read this, um, but you were talking about how um, creation of poetry is messy, basically, and you never know when you're coming to a poem and um, about to create a poem exactly how it will happen. Sometimes it's an image, sometimes it's a voice or um, a story that you want to tell. And um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit more and tell if there are any constants in the mess, um, and if so, what they are, or you know, if there are any constants for you um, in that process. Well, I mean, I think one one thing about the writing of poetry is that you can't just walk around waiting for inspiration. You can have a very long wait. Randall Jarrell <laughs> said, you know, Randall Jarrell said that it. Um, a poet is someone who stands out in rainstorms. A good poet is someone who gets hit by lightning six times. A great poet is someone who gets hit by lightning 12 times. So you can't be sure that you're going to hit by lightning, but <laughs> you need to go out and stand in the rain if you're going to get hit at all. And so you need to do your work. And so one of the constants is you need to sort of, you know, fasten your behind to the chair and sit down <laughs> and, you know, do some work. And try to and, and, and try to consciously practice your craft. Now, the mess. The reason I think the writing of poetry is messy is because you don't know exactly what you're going to get or how you're going to get there. And that sometimes you begin with a formal idea. Sometimes you begin with something you need to write about. Sometimes you begin with, you know, a, the sound of certain words. Sometimes you begin with something you read in another poem that you want to try um, and then you start you start going to work on your poem. Now the constant I would say is what does it take for me to write a poem that I think is good or that I can live with and for me there are two parts to this. One something important has to be at stake there has to be something that really means something to me that gets down to where I really live in my unconscious to get to something that is meaningful to me. So something has to be at risk. And then something has to happen formally. I just can't write a poem myself without some formal idea, some formal recognition. It doesn't have to be a traditional form, but there has to be some shape. Something has to be come forward and present itself that I can shape and turn into something. You know, the oldest word in Greek for poetry is poesis, which means making. And I hold fast to the idea that a poet is a maker and a poem is a made thing. So 
you have to make something, and so you have to figure out how to do that. And for me, one of the constants is I have to have some formal idea at some point in the writing of the poem, not always at the beginning, but something has to kick in to try and create a structure. Well, do you, is there typically a certain point where you recognize what kind of beast it is that you're actually dealing with when you're working on a poem? Or you well, say, okay, the form is sort of coming to me now. Yeah, there's a certain point where you go, this is what this, this is, you know, you're trying, the creative process is mysterious because you're trying to, to lead what you're also following. And, mm-hmm. um, but at a certain point, you need to, you know, you need to say, I'm going to make this a sonnet, or I'm going to make this and turn this into three line stanzas, or I'm going to use a drop line, or I'm going to extend this metaphor. And you're going to, you can't just let it happen. You have to right. also kind of harness it. And so as you begin to harness it, you begin to see how it can be deployed. I mean, in a certain way, um, a poem is like a piece of music. Uh, it's got a structure, and it sets up mm-hmm. certain expectations which are fulfilled or thwarted or turned. Um, William Carlos Williams said a poem is a small or large machine made out of words. There's nothing redundant about a machine. So at a certain point, you need to start, you know, you need to figure out how you're going to make that machine. And sometimes right. you begin with the idea of how to make it, and sometimes you discover it as you go. Okay. So when you finish writing a poem, do you usually know pretty instantly whether or not you've written a good poem, or does it take a while? Do you have to set it aside and look at it a few days later? Um, well, I think you feel ecstatic when you finish a poem, at least I do, mm-hmm. and I always think it's really great. <laughs> um, it or you, or it still continues to bother you, and you know it's not really finished. But okay. after it settles for a, a couple of days or a little while, sometimes you see that what you thought was so great maybe isn't so great after all. And the excitement that you feel in finishing something isn't necessarily a guide to how lasting it's going to be. So you can be wildly excited about something and find out that actually it doesn't work at all. Um, And other times you can be a little less ecstatic because you couldn't get it the way you wanted it and you find out that it's got something that really seems to stick. Okay. Um, So you can't, you're not really a good judge of your own work when you're in the very frenzy of working and right. completing it. That takes a colder eye at some point, at a later point. Wow, and it's so interesting to hear someone as far along and as accomplished as you still saying that, you know. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Well, you know, you're, whatever accomplishments you are, whatever you have, that's not going to save you from the difficulty of having to write the next poem. And, <laughs> right. You know, you're always a beginner in some way. You're always starting out, and you always bring that frame of mind because I think you need to be humble before the process because you're not entirely in control of it. You're just doing your best. Absolutely. Well, someone has been wanting to talk to you since we very first started, so I'm going to go ahead and let a caller come in and ask you a question. Sure. Okay. Are you there? Hello? Hello? Um, hello, caller, are you there? 
Okay, for some reason it's not coming through. Well, I'm going to go ahead and mute them for a minute. And um, I wanted to see if you could read um, a few poems for us. That would the be a pleasure. Oh, terrific. You know which ones I want you to read. <laughs> a Chinese vase, wild gratitude, and dates. Okay, why don't I start with a Chinese vase? Terrific. Thank you. Sometimes I think that my body is a vase with me in it. A blue-tiled Chinese vase that I return to sometimes in the rain. It's raining hard, but inside the little China vase... There's clean white water circling slowly through the shadows like a flock of yellow geese circling over a small lake, or like the lake itself, ruffled with wind and geese and a light rain, that is not dirty or stained or even ruffled by the medley of motors and oars and sometimes even sails that are washed each summer to her knees. It's raining in the deep poplars and in the stand of gray pines, it's snowing in the mountains, in the Urals, in the wastes of Russia that have edged off into China. The rain has turned to sleet, and the sleet has turned to snow, and the sullen black clouds that have surfaced in the cracks of that Chinese vase, in the wrinkles that have widened like rivers in that vase of China. It's snowing harder and harder now over the mountains, but inside the mountains there's a sunlit cave, a small cave perhaps, like a monk's cell or like a small pond with geese and with clear mountain water inside. Sometimes I think that I come back to my body the way a penitent or a pilgrim or a poet or a whore or a murderer or a very young girl comes for the first time to a holy place to kneel down, to forget the impossible weight of being human, to drink clear water. Wow, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you the very much. I love that poem. <laughs> it goes off on a lot favorites. of wild flights. It does. It does. And I, I wanted to ask you about that It's because I, I was reading also about your theories about metamorphosis and transformation and that poem, just, you know, a body's a vase and the vase has a world in it and then the cave is amongst cell and and a pond with geese, and it's, the whole thing is just a swirl of movement and transformation. And um, I was just wondering, um, you know, what it was like to create that poem, what the process was like. And, you know, we were just talking about how it's different for each poem. Um, was there I mean, anything this, magical this, that was... <laughs> this poem is a matter... You know, it, the whole poem moves on a, as a metaphor. The body, mm-hmm. my body is a vase. Right. With me in it. Now, that's a weird analogy right there. <laughs> I mean, it's peculiar. The question it's is... a wonderful weird analogy. <laughs> I, like, I liked it, and I wanted to see, well, what happens if you push this? Let's see. Let's take this thinking and see how far we can go with it. I mean, you know that, that the metaphysical poets, who I greatly admired, wrote in what they... what. T.S. Eliot called conceit. Well, actually, Samuel Johnson first called it conceit or a form of wit, which is you take the metaphor and you see how far you can push it. Now, in every metaphor, there's a contradiction. Something It always breaks down because you say one thing is something else. A is B. And, of course, their two things are not the same. So the metaphor will always break down at a certain point. So the question is how far... Can you push this analogy 
this linkage between the body as a vase and a Chinese vase in particular, one of those beautiful Chinese vases you see in museums. Yeah. Um, and then it just kind of imagines a scene uh, around the rain. The thing I, I think that works in the poem, that I like in the poem, that I tried for in the poem, is that the way the poem associates has to do not with the body, but with the mind. Because the mm-hmm. mind is, the, is, is what keeps free associating. The mind keeps moving off. And the mind keeps leaving the body to go off into these very dreamy states of uh, you start imagining um, snowing in the mountains and the Urals and the wastes of Russia that have edged into China. I mean, that's going very far from your first idea about a poem about your body. Right. So the idea is how far can you go and then come back. And so that's where the poem tries to make that circle where it goes you know, the mountains to the sunlit cave to the monk's cell to the pond. Sometimes I think that I come back to my body. And the poem then returns from these flights of fancy, from this imaginative space, to try and get back to something concrete, to get back to something physical, something pure, something clean, back to the body itself, which I'm saying is a kind of site of holiness. Right, right, and there's just that sort of lyrical ending, which I think is earned by the images. Well, you're trying. I mean, I hope so. But yes, you're trying <laughs> to come back to that lyrical Indian, to that to that lyrical moment, um, yes. where you get something pure. Because at the end, the sort of kicker is to forget the impossible weight of being human, which is the weight is tremendous. And you're trying to seek something to us, you know, inside that way that will be light. And the analogy is, you know, between people, you coming like a penitent or a pilgrim or a poet, or really, you know, really a whore or a murderer, or the opposite of that, a very young girl. You either come as an innocent or you come with someone, you know, really experienced, mm-hmm. someone complicit, or you come as a pilgrim, or you come as a penitent. Right to someplace holy, but that holy place is your own body. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, So would you read Wild Gratitude? Sure. Thanks. This poem, um, my cat Zoe um, gets literary immortality and fame here by her association with a great cat out of literature, and that's Christopher Smart's Cat Jeffrey. And I'll just say that in the 18th century, Christopher Smart wrote a really wonderful poem called Jubilate Agno um, from a mental hospital. And there are three quotes in this poem from Christopher Smart's poem. He praises the postmaster general and all conveyancers of letters. He calls his cat Jeffrey the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him. And he calls the mouse a creature of great personal valor, (laughs) which I've always liked. Uh, Wow, gratitude. Tonight when I knelt down next to our cat Zoe and put my fingers into her clean cat's mouth and rubbed her swollen belly that will never know kittens, and watched her wriggle onto her side, pawing the air, and listened to her solemn little squeals of delight. I was thinking about the poet, Christopher Smart, who wanted to kneel down and pray without ceasing, 
in every one of the splintered London streets and was locked away in the madhouse at St. Luke's with his sad religious mania and his wild gratitude and his grave prayers for the other lunatics and his great love for his speckled cat, Jeffrey. All day today, August 13th, 1983, I remembered how Christopher Smart blessed this same day in August, 1759, for its calm bravery and ordinary good conscience. This was the day that he blessed the Postmaster General and all conveyancers of letters for their warm humanity and the gardeners for their private benevolence and intricate knowledge of the language of flowers and the milkmen for their universal human kindness. This morning I understood that he loved to hear, as I have heard, the soft clink of milk bottles on the rickety stairs in the early morning and how terrible it must have seemed when even this small pleasure was denied him. But it wasn't until tonight when I knelt down and slipped my hand into Zoe's waggling mouth that I remembered how he'd called Geoffrey the servant of a living God, duly and daily serving him, and for the first time understood what it meant. Because it wasn't until I saw my own cat whine and roll over on her fluffy back that I realized how gratefully he had watched Jeffrey fetch and carry his wooden cork across the grass in the wet garden, patiently jumping over a high stick, calmly sharpening his claws on the woodpile, rubbing his nose against the nose of another cat, stretching or slowly stalking his traditional enemy, the mouse, a rodent, a creature of great personal valor, and then dailing so much that his enemy escaped. And only then did I understand it is Jeffrey and every creature like him who can teach us how to praise, purring in their own language, wreathing themselves in the living fire. Wow, thank you. <laughs> that was great, too. My pleasure. Um, wow. So um, I'm assuming when we were talking earlier about how poems come from different places, obviously you loved the Christopher Smart poem and probably had that on your mind for a while, watching your own cat. Um, um, well, I actually, I mean, I had the Christopher Smart poem on my mind for many years before mm -hmm. I ever wrote the poem Wild Gratitude. And in my, this book, this poem is the title poem of my second book, Wild Gratitude. And yeah. it's the, the last phrase is the, as you know, the title, The Living Fire, is the title of my new and selected poems. Yeah. In, yeah. in my first book, For the Sleepwalkers, I wrote a poem about Christopher Smart, in which Christopher Smart is the speaker. And I imagine Christopher Smart in a kind of wild, crazed meditation in the mental asylum in London mm -hmm. in the 18th century. And so Christopher Smart had been with me for a long time as a poet. Okay. Um, but it occurred to me one day when I was in Houston many years after I'd been reading Smart that, and I was playing with my cat, that it would be amusing to try to see what would happen if I paralleled my playing with my cat and Christopher Smart's playing with his cat, Jeffrey. And it seemed to me so incommensurate and so kind of comical that I wanted to see what would happen. 
And so I began to structure the poem as a series of parallels. I do this, he does that. I do this, he does that. And then I decided that I would set the poem on the very same day as his poem. So it would be kind of an anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I would see what it would, and see what it would yield. And mm-hmm. so the poem is the working through of this comparison to see what you can, to see what you'll get. And mm-hmm. what, basically what, it's a, it's a kind of um, an education. What does Christopher Smart teach you? Is you go back and forth between your own cat and Christopher Smart's cat. And then what does the cat teach you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so the poem becomes structured. And I, I recently, I wrote an essay. I had to, I, I mean, not an essay, but there's a book called Poems in Persons or Poetry in Persons that, that mm-hmm. um, based on these um, class discussions and interviews with poets with a, with a teacher, a wonderful teacher in Pearl, London. And I went to Pearl London's class, and she had gone through, I had given her manuscripts of the poem. And I recently saw these in, my, in the transcript of this interview, which I had done in the late 80s. Um, and I discovered that the poem for the longest time was called August 13th. So you wow. tell me, which is a better title, August 13th or Wild <laughs> Gratitude? It doesn't have the same ring, does it? It does not. Um, but you can see why I called it that, because that's yeah, the date of the poem, absolutely. and that's sort of where it started. And then at a certain point uh, in the writing of the poem, it, very far along, I discovered this phrase leaping out at me, mm-hmm. which I thought had a lot of power, which I discovered in the writing of it, um, the phrase, wild gratitude. You know, um, I was thinking about... Oh, go ahead, please. No, that's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking about that title, Wild Gratitude, actually, and um, I was thinking about how you talked about how poetry defamiliarizes words and then brings them back to the reader again. And um, I think I'm really seeing that in the poems that you read, and particularly in Wild Gratitude, and even in the title itself. Um, it does that for me because it makes you think of wild, the words wild and gratitude in totally new ways. Um, and I don't know, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as um, a technique in poetry. Well, this is something that poetry does when it works. I mean, you have one idea of the word wild, you have one idea mm-hmm. of, or, you know, many ideas, but you have another idea of gratitude. And when you put them together, something happens. And, you know, I like that phrase, wild gratitude, which is why I hit upon it first in the poem, then in the title, then in the title yeah. of my, you know, then in the title of my book, because it seemed to, it seemed to stand for something beyond the very phrase itself. And I, wow. I like it because it, it's got a feeling of something that's extravagant, something that's not exactly in control. I mean, mm-hmm. what is wild gratitude? It's a gratitude beyond just your relief or your thankfulness. It's sort of some kind of uncontrollable gratitude. Right, right. Something that you can't, you know, the things we've been talking about with the creative process. Your gratitude, your feeling of blessing is not something that's entirely rational. Right, right. And so I like the feeling of extravagance in that. Um, and, um, And so, I don't know, I think poetry can put you in the space of that feeling. 
yeah. which I think we've all had. I think we've all had moments where you feel so blessed by something, so overwhelmed yeah. that you feel that your gratitude is even incommensurate, and so you feel you have a wild gratitude, not a regular gratitude. Right. Although, and, I, like you know, I would have never thought to say it that way. That's why it's well. That's the idea. That I mean, that's, you know, that's that's what you know. That's why you're trying to write poetry. That's what you hope will happen. Exactly. I mean, the thing about poetry, unlike say many say say the difference between let's think about reading the newspaper and reading a poem. When you read the newspaper, you remember the story, but you forget the way in which the thing was said. The story is what's important. We all remember it, but you throw out the newspaper because the way in which it was said doesn't matter. In fact, the newspaper tries to make that as you know as clear as possible that the way it it's written isn't supposed to matter. What's being written is all that counts. In poetry, the way in which it's being said is inseparable from what's being said. You can't throw away the the poem and just have and, and remember the story when you read Wild Gratitude. It just you can't go around just going, Oh well, there's this poem about this guy plays with his cat and uh, and he remembers Christopher Smart playing with his cat. That's not the poem. The way in which the poem is saying the thing is inseparable from what's being said. I mean that's why Ezra Pound said poetry is news that stays news. Yeah, and, you know, it's so true, even when you mentioned the other Christopher Smart poem from your first book, I instantly, you know, the thing that came into my mind was not what the poem was about, but these these lines came flooding back to me, and I don't know the exact quotes, but just something about um, it's always snowing in the country of the mad. Is that sort of how the last Yes, that's it. Goes? Yes, that's it. Yeah. It's always snowing in the and country of the mad. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's just such a powerful line, and you just, you remember that, you know. Well, this is what you're seeking, you know, in poetry. You can't control it, but you're seeking for something something that will be memorable. Mm-hmm. Some putting together of words in a way that for some magical reason you can't get out of your head like a tune. Mhm. You know, mm-hmm. something exactly. that something that stays inside you and you don't know exactly why and you don't know exactly what will stick. I mean, sometimes you read poems and you know, the poem mostly you forget, and then something stays with you. Some formulation means something to you, and it it sticks. And when it sticks with a lot of people, then you have, you know, something that lasts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I um, didn't set out with the idea of wild gratitude in writing my poem about Christopher Smart. I set out with the idea of I'd already loved Christopher Smart, and I knew I was moved by his going through the London streets and asking people to pray with him and his story of being locked away in the madhouse at St. Luke's. And I'd loved his poem, Jubilate Agno. But the poem began really with a playful idea of let's see what will happen if we go back and forth between me playing with my cat in 1983 and thinking about Christopher Smart playing with his cat in 1759 and see what happens. And mm-hmm. what I came to was that the ordinary life that we take so for granted has tremendous power for someone who it's been taken away from. And that the gift of Christopher Smart is that he shows us 
the reason he's so crazed for the ordinary things, the postmaster general and the milkman and the cat, is because they've been denied him. And mm-hmm. from this realm of the mad, where he is, it begins to take on a kind of magical power because mm-hmm. he doesn't have it. And so I wanted to go back and take that sense of the blessedness of the ordinary and make that my poem because that's okay. what I learned in that poem. Because yeah. after all, it's not just Jeffrey. It's every creature like him who teaches us how to praise. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, of course, I've been thinking about my cat, <laughs> trying to get in the room now. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask you a, another question before we go to the next poem because um, I just want to make sure I have time to get it in. Um, I've noticed um, in reading your poems that you're getting more direct in your poetry as time passes. Yes, and that's I'm true. Okay, great. And um, also more space around the lines, more vulnerability, um, and increased generosity and fearlessness. And I'm just wondering, you know, how you see your own evolution as a poet and, um, you know, these changes that I'm noticing, um, are they intentional or or is it just happening over time? Um, I would say that it's... they both happen over time and they're intentional that mm-hmm. is you but i mean it's hard to, it's hard for me to separate all this out but um it's certainly true that as i've gotten older uh and as i've sort of earned my credentials um mm-hmm. i've been sort of less interested in sort of flashing the cards and showing <laughs> all the things i can do formally and in right. sort of getting down to my own human truths. And I've begun to, you know, I've, I've just over the years come to value directness in poetry as I value it in people more and more. Yeah. And, and do you, uh, um, yeah, oh, go ahead, please. No, and, and so I sort of, I, I don't know, I've tried to pare down some of the um, extravagances mm-hmm. of my poetic youth to try to get at some emotional core, which has been important to me as I've gotten older. So that's that's been sort of the process. That's great. And do you notice also that you also prefer now to read poetry that's more direct? Have your reading tastes changed with your um, writing intention? Um, I can't say that my reading has actually changed. I think that um, maybe I find certain things um, more satisfying now and other things less satisfying, but I've always read widely, and I continue to read widely, and I guess I'm not – I don't feel that I'm reading in particular for verification of my own ideas or my own methods. So I continue mm-hmm. to read all different kinds of things and all different kinds of poetry. But it's true that things that are more direct and things that have a kind of high emotional quotient often speak more powerfully to me than other kinds of things. Okay. Okay, great. Um, and, yeah, I was actually thinking about how um, you you often tell young readers and writers that in order to be great writers of poetry, they need to also be great readers of poetry, right? And, um, um, young young poets don't like to hear this. 
they, they don't like to hear it when I say there's never been a great poet in the history of poetry who hasn't also been a great reader of poetry. So I do tell them, you may be the first. I'm not saying it's not possible. You may be breaking the mold. But until now, in the long history of poetry, there has never been one um, who hasn't been a reader of poetry. So this is, you know, this, this tells us something. Poetry is made out of the human condition, but it's also made out of other poetry. Right, um, right. And this is just the hard truth that in order to write poetry, you need to read poetry. I mean, I know it seems so obvious. Um, but, <laughs> no, not really. But it's apparently not. Um, that because I think poetry is so emotional for many people and because it's so personal, many people think they can just write poetry without reading it. And, of course, you can. But I don't think you can write good poetry or poetry that will last without entering into the art. You can't be oh, a great basketball player without seeing a basketball game. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Well, thinking about that and reading and influence and everything, I have to say I was kind of surprised when I first found out that you'd written your doctoral dissertation on Yeats. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what made you – I mean, I like Yeats, but um, he's so esoteric. I was just wondering what kind of impact it would have on someone to – study him and that kind of depth at such an early point in their career. And I was just kind of wondering what you made Yeats, I mean, why you chose Yeats and what kind of impact you feel like it had on you as a writer. Well, I've always loved Yeats's poetry, and I continue to love it, although I have to say as I've gotten older, this won't surprise you, um, I've gotten less and less interested in the esoteric part of Yeats and more and more yes. interested in the middle and late work, which is so direct. I mean, beginning with responsibilities in 1904, he says, I came down, you know, we all got down off our stilts. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was was young, I was very interested in those stilts. And I was very interested in Yeats' elaborate systematizing and, uh, and the the esoteric doctrine that he had. But as I've gotten older, I mean, that doctrine is still there, and I think it's very useful in understanding Yeats, but I I really admire is the great formal skill and directness in the poems. And okay. the, the, the esoteric things are still there, but it's possible mm-hmm. to read those poems without knowing anything about them. And this is one of the fantastic things about Yeats, is you can read some of those late poems and not know anything about the mystical systems. The more you know about the mystical systems, the more they enhance the poems but they're not necessary to the poems in terms of their direct appeal. I didn't know that when I was young, but I feel that strongly now. (laughs) Uh, And obviously I think that's the mark of good writing too, when it can be understood at so many different levels like that, you know, where you know these extra things that enhances it, but if you don't, it's still beautiful writing. Right, exactly. Um, I was wondering also um, that one of the predominant themes in your poems in general is the difficulty that you've had with faith, and you've been so generous and honest um, with the reader about that difficulty, and I read that you described your book, Earthly Measures, as God-hungry, and um, I also remember from one of your poems a haunting image of the God-shaped hole in your chest, and yet the poems that you just read and in so many poems that I read of yours, I see this profound spirituality. Um, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the struggle with faith and how you perceive your own spirituality and its relationship to your writing. You know, I, I feel that I've never been gifted with belief. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I mean, I, I think it is a gift that I don't have it. Um, but mm-hmm. I've always, I've always admired it, and I've always quested for something. So I see myself as a seeker. Um, mm-hmm. And but I'm aware that in my own work, in my own quest, there won't be any rest, and mm-hmm. there won't be much certainty. But I don't. Um, I seem to have a deep need to try and find something, to seek something um, beyond the daily, beyond the quotidian, something Mm -hmm. beyond the human. But I haven't been able to find it. But I keep looking for it. And a lot of my poetry has been to find figures who help me in this quest or enable me in this quest. Or A lot of poetry does this work for me of seeking and i've been i've tried to be honest in my poems i believe Mm -hmm. it's important to be as truthful as possible i've tried Mm -hmm. to be i've tried to be as ruthlessly truthful as possible about my own spiritual quest my own spiritual longings which are great and my own feeling for the divine which is great but I, I can't say that I rest in it or that I have that I I confirm it or that I ultimately believe it. I just long for it, and that's what that's what my poetry has tried to chart. Um, in the poem, a partial history of my stupidity, it ends with something that I've always been amused by, where it goes, "I did not believe in God, who eluded me." Now, the phrase "eluded," the words "eluded" suggest that there does there is a God who's hiding from you, but you're asserting at the same time you don't believe in him. So that always seemed funny to me, that there's, I have a sense that there's a God who's eluding me. Um, Or in in another poem, you know, Green Couch, I go, I'm angry at God for no longer existing. Right, right. That's amusing to me because, of course, if there really wasn't any God, how could you possibly be angry at him? And then you're asserting he doesn't exist, but you're also mad at him. So this is the I, I keep finding comical ways to put this conundrum of something which is the seeking for something that you're sure must be there, but your your skepticism that it actually exists. So this seems to be the state of my of that I continually find myself in in terms of poetry, especially in the book Earthly Measures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting too um, because I know you've written about Yeats's theories that um, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but the idea was that the best poetry really comes out of man's struggle or woman's struggle with him or herself. And um, you know, I, I mean, this is such a perfect example of that. Yeah. Well, Yeats, Yeats, what he says is, we make out of the quarrel with others rhetoric, out of the quarrel with ourselves, poetry. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and so I've always liked that, even though there is a rhetorical dimension to poetry, I like that idea of the self-quarrel. You know, I like Dostoevsky's notion of self-conviction. I mean, Dostoevsky's aesthetic is basically convict thyself. And um, I've always liked the way that, that certain poets turn the knife against themselves, and I've always tried to do it myself in terms of ruthless <laughs> self-scrutiny. Right. Well, I was wondering if um, how you would say that the writing itself has impacted the struggle with spirituality. I mean, we see how it's present in the writing, but how has the process of writing, or has it impacted it? Does that make sense? 
You mean for my own life? Yes, yes. Um, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, it's sort of <laughs> acted out in the, I mean, it, the writing is the practice. It is, it's acted out. I mean, what you see is what you get here. I don't think, I'm not holding any secrets. I'm not like secretly going to church every <laughs> Sunday. Um, and I'm just not telling you about it. Um, <laughs> That's uh, what I suspected. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, the, the, it, it is what, you know, it is, it is what it is. I mean, I, well, this I is my practice. I think what I'm trying to say, and not really, I wasn't really getting it out, is that, that to me, in some ways, it seems like, and it's probably totally presumptuous of me to say this, but it seems to me like, in some ways, um, your writing is your spiritual practice. I think you kind of even said something like that a little while ago. And what I see is, I, I've never known or met or read anyone who's more dedicated to poetry than you are. And I see this incredible faith in poetry that I never see wavering. And um, I, see, I don't know how to explain what. I'm well, that to is say. true. I mean, that, that, I mean, if yeah. I had to say what was my religion, I would say that I'm, af- that I'm afraid that's been my religion. That my yeah. my life, my vocation is poetry, and my lifelong commitment has been to poetry. And I decided when I was a teenager that I wanted to be a poet. I decided when I was in college that this was my vocation and this is what I would do. And I'm 60 years old now, and it just hasn't wavered. And, and you never feel disillusioned or anything like that with poetry. Exactly. I mean, I get tired of some poets, and uh, <laughs> believe me. And, uh, I, you know, I get annoyed by certain people, and, um, and I get annoyed by certain, you know, by certain reputations. But... Um, so I would say individual poets sometimes let me down as people, and sometimes their work lets me down. But poetry itself, the practice of poetry, and the larger church of poetry, um, is a it's, a it's a big country, and um, there are lots of there are lots of people in it, and uh, that practice and that worldwide activity has been very sustaining to me and I, I for some reason I recognized myself in it I wanted to be part of this community of poets living and dead that was my dearest wish and that's you know it just hasn't wavered I'm not exactly sure why I felt called to this but I was and it's it's you know I'm, I'm hoping to take it all the way to the end I feel very strongly that I've sought out my alternative family uh, in, in, in the family of poets. Okay, that's a really great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're about to run out of time, so I'm just going to ask you two more quick questions. And um, one is that I, I laughed when I saw an interview with you um, where you said that the living fire, um, that assembling that collection was more traumatic than you expected it to be. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it was traumatic and how you overcame the trauma and how you made the selections. Well, you know, I put together a selected poems. I mean, no one put a gun to my head and said I had to do it, um, but I did decide to do it, and I thought I would enjoy it. And, and the, the reason it was traumatic was I worked very hard for my whole writing life to try and make individual books, and that Robert Frost said that if there are 29 poems in a in a book, then the book itself is the 30th poem. You're looking for something in a book where it's larger than the sum of its parts. So every book has its own journey, its own arguments, 
um, its own unities. And what I discovered in putting together selected poems, which I should have known in advance but I hadn't thought of, is when you're selecting certain poems and taking them out of those original books, you're losing that structure. They're no longer in relationship to each other. They're in relationship to your larger work. And so aside from the fact that it's like you're shunning certain of the children and you're sending them to the second level and you suddenly realize, oh, my God, I always cared about these poems. I worked so hard on them. Now I'm sort of, you know, putting them, to the, I'm putting them in the bleachers. Um, so there's that. You have to select. That's the point. And then the right. poems lose their resonance in relationship to the collection that they were in. Oh, okay. And the, that's why it was traumatic. The compensation okay, um, is that I decided I was making a new book and creating a okay. new through line and that lit the living fire would have its own life, its own structure, and that I would lose certain things by taking out a lot of the poems and putting other poems in. But I'd also gain something by creating a through line through the books that would try to represent the diversity of my work while also creating a kind of feeling of integrity of something that was driving it. Okay, great. That makes a lot of sense. So um, just the last thing that I wanted to ask you is if you have anything coming up, any publications or events or lectures or anything that you wanted to announce? Um, I don't have anything coming out right now. I've spent so much time on the on the living fire, but I am traveling around giving readings. I'm going to Round Top, which is in oh, Texas, uh, in when the spring. That? Okay. Uh, that is in – I have to look at my calendar. I'm sorry to say I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's in March. Well, and people can look it up on the Round Top website um, now that we know you'll be there. Um, so that will be my next trip to Texas. Yes, it's the weekend of April. It's in April. It's April 15th through the 17th. So okay. a little plug for Round Top, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the for the close reading, Melissa, and for the deep interview. Oh, I really appreciate it. It oh, means a lot to welcome. me. Oh, me too. It was great talking to you. And, and now that I know that you'll be in Texas, I'll see you in Round Top. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye, Thank dear. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. So I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in tonight. Our next interview will be with Jeffrey Davis on November 15th. And our December interview will be with Floyd Sklute. As well, the webinar, Sacred Space in the Digital Age, led by architect, filmmaker, and author Anthony Lawler, is coming up on October 20th and can be accessed through the Teferit website. The first 25 registrants get a free copy of Lawler's DVD, The Living Temple. I hope to see you there. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.